0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Another one of those weeks that has felt, well, much longer. The Georgia runoffs seem almost like ancient history with the deadly storming of the U.S. Capitol. We'll discuss both with Congressman Joe Neguse. The Democrat represents Boulder, Fort Collins, and Vail. Then answers about the vaccine rollout from a frontline physician who's also advised the state... Dr. Anuj Mehta will help us understand why things differ from county to county. And will tackle the question we hear the most, especially from older Coloradans. When is it my turn and how will I know? Plus, someone wrote a song for us about their pandemic escape. And cute little pikas. By studying pika survival in this habitat, we can
1: learn how climate change is affecting this region.
2: A lot of Evergreen members don't know their membership has expired. I thought I was giving every month automatically, and I was, but on my credit card. And I didn't know that once my credit card expired, it was no longer active. So now I have joined as an Evergreen member by taking money directly out of my checking account, so that way it'll never expire. It's easy to keep your Evergreen membership current
1: by using your checking account. Learn more at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. President Donald Trump has just about a week and a half left in office, but after the deadly storming of the Capitol this week, top lawmakers are calling for his early removal. Two options are on the table, invoking the 25th Amendment and impeachment. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse of Boulder is on the line as we continue our conversations with Colorado's delegation. Congressman, welcome back to the program.
3: Good morning, Ryan. Good to be with you.
0: So this week, you and other Democrats signed a letter urging Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Pence was reportedly unresponsive to a phone call from Democratic leadership asking for the same, so that may be unlikely to move forward. Uh, Meanwhile, Denver Congresswoman Diana DeGette has sponsored a resolution to impeach President Trump, charging him with inciting a riot. Does she have your support uh, in that endeavor?
3: She does. Uh, Yesterday, I I joined a resolution uh, introduced by my colleagues, uh, Representative Cicilline, Representative Raskin, and Representative Liu, who are colleagues of mine on the Judiciary Committee, which, as you know, has... Plenary jurisdiction over impeachment matters uh, to ultimately introduce a resolution that uh, would impeach the president for uh, the abuse of power uh, that he committed uh, by inciting uh, the armed insurrection that took place uh, at the United States Capitol just a few days ago uh, during the joint session of Congress.
0: Which path do you see as most likely at this point?
3: I think it's an open question, Brian. Uh, I must say that over the past several days, uh, I've had a number of conversations with my colleagues, Republican colleagues, uh, who privately have indicated that they are supportive of, uh, at a a minimum, invocation of the 25th Amendment. Uh, There are many colleagues of mine, like Representative Adam Kinzinger out of uh, the state of Illinois, Republican member of Congress, who has publicly stated as much. Uh, And of course, there's some public reporting indicating that perhaps some cabinet members uh, in the president's cabinet have also uh, potentially broached this subject. Uh, Obviously, Uh, It it will depend on the cabinet members and the vice president doing their duty uh, and uh, upholding their constitutional oath in the event that they don't do so. I think the Congress needs to be prepared to act. We held uh, we had a a series of uh, leadership calls and meetings yesterday within the House, and we'll have a House Democratic Caucus uh, call with the entire caucus in just a few short hours where – I believe we'll have a very robust conversation about the next steps. And and certainly uh, impeachment will be part of that conversation.
0: I'll note that the cabinet is shrinking as we speak with resignations of protest. I mean, impeachment would take some time, wouldn't it? I mean, we're a week and a half away from the inauguration of Joe Biden. Why remove a president who has just days left in office Uh, either route?
3: Two things, Ryan. Uh, First, with respect to the procedural steps, as you know, uh, there are multiple ways in which an impeachment resolution can be brought to the floor of the United States House of Representatives. Of course, a year ago, as as you'll recall, uh, during the Judiciary Committee proceedings that Representative Buck and I participated in as members of the, that committee, uh, that process uh, did take uh, quite a while. However, Uh, In the past, uh, resolutions have been brought as privileged resolutions to the floor, which would, in effect, require a vote uh, in a fairly short period of time. Uh, And that is an option uh, that uh, is at the disposal of the House should we choose to pursue it. With respect to your larger question as to why uh, pursuing impeachment would be a viable step that so many of us are recommending, Mm -hmm. the reality is, uh, again, I I never would have imagined sitting on the the floor of the House of Representatives, as I participated in the joint session, that an armed insurrection would take place at the seat of government and uh, that, uh, uh, that 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 type of activity could be possible. Um, it is clear that this president has no interest in ensuring a peaceful transfer of power. And so it's incumbent upon the Congress to do everything in its power to ensure that, that, that in fact, the peaceful transfer of power takes place. And one way to effectuate that would be to remove uh, the president from office so that Vice President Pence uh, can preside over the course of the next 12 days and ultimately ensure that that peaceful transfer of power happens on January 20th, as it must.
0: In just the last few minutes, the president has tweeted that he will not be attending the inauguration, though in a video message yesterday, he did seem to finally acknowledge that Joe Biden will be the next president. Uh, Let's listen to a snippet from that video.
4: I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engage in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay.
0: That is in contrast to his comments earlier this week. He called these rioters patriots, said they were special. We love you, he said. Uh, Care to comment on the remarks from the president?
3: Well, clearly, Ryan, those remarks came after uh, the incendiary rhetoric that he has uh, been engaged in uh, week after week, month after month. Um, as you, I'm sure, know, we learned this morning that a Capitol Police officer died. Uh, he was murdered. Uh, the injuries that he sustained defending us, defending members of Congress as we sat in the House. Um, again, I, I think we need to judge this president not by his words, but by his actions He has betrayed his oath of office. That much is clear. And it is incumbent upon members of Congress to now take the appropriate next constitutional step.
0: Uh, Which might be impeachment, as you have explained. Do you think that impeachment would complicate the politics of the Congress moving forward in a country that is deeply divided? uh, Do you think that that adds to the rift and makes legislating harder?
3: I don't think so necessarily, Ryan. I mean, I, I, reading through some of the comments that have been made in the past 48 hours uh, from many Republican members of Congress, Republican senators like Senator Ben Sasse, who uh, spoke very forcefully uh, yesterday with respect to uh, describing the president's uh, betrayal of his oath of office, I think that uh, there are many in both parties, Americans of good faith, who recognize that what happened at our nation's Capitol on Wednesday can never happen again, and that clearly. Uh, What we need now is a calm hand to guide uh, this country over the course of the next week and a half and ensure that the peaceful transition of power takes place. So I I don't believe uh, that 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 would uh, necessarily be the case in terms of uh, it making it more difficult for us to uh, accomplish things in
0: the Congress. Well, let me put that differently. Do you think that the violence at the U.S. Capitol has in some ways uh, ushered in a new bipartisanship or a new common understanding?
3: I certainly you know, had a number of conversations with Republican colleagues of mine um, who you know, were evacuated with me um, during the, the day. Uh, and those conversations, I, I will say, were promising in terms of talking about the need for us uh, to work harder at trying to unite the country uh, and to, to heal the deep divides that have metastasized over several years and that have been Uh, in in my view, fueled uh, by this president and his particular brand of politics. So I'm hopeful that the fever will break uh, and that we can get back to the business of governing in the the coming weeks. But again, right now, uh, there is a clear and present danger to the foundation of our republic, and that is the peaceful transfer of power that has occurred since the the very first days of our country's uh, origin. So uh, at the end of the day, we have to remain focused on that first and foremost.
0: Congressman Joe Neguse, you are the son of refugees who fled violence in Eritrea in East Africa. I wonder if they entered your mind at all during the insurrection Wednesday.
3: Yeah, they certainly did. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, Ryan, my parents, you know, were immigrants, as you said. Uh, they sacrificed quite a bit uh, to give me and my sister the opportunity to, uh, to to live the American dream, to pursue our own dreams. And I, I don't think they ever imagined that their son, uh, you know, one generation removed, would serve in the United States House of Representatives, and they, of course, you know were very nervous uh, and very worried, uh, particularly because they were watching us, you know, I, I had just finished my speech on the floor uh, before the uh, the Capitol was breached and, and before we were locked down. Um, so I, they were certainly very concerned as of course my wife uh, uh, and uh, extended family were. but um, again, as I, I think about you know the, the next steps and, and where we go from here, It's critically, critically important that we all recognize that democracy is fragile, uh, that it takes hard work and good faith of Americans from all political stripes to be able to make it work. And we need that right now. I I know you've heard me say this before, uh, the old adage of Benjamin Franklin at the end of the Constitutional Convention being asked, what kind of country, what kind of government had you all uh, devised for us? And, And his response was a republic. If you can keep it, if you can keep it, that, that is an admonition to every American and to every Colorado. it's one we should take very seriously.
0: I know that you have to be going, uh, Congressman, let me just ask now that there is a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate, Chuck Schumer has said one of the first things Congress will consider is a $2,000 stimulus check. Do you support that?
3: I do. Uh, I, I've been an early proponent of that. Uh, almost a year ago, uh, a little less than a year ago, I suppose, back in uh, April of 2020. And uh, many of us in Congress who have been pushing for the same for quite some time, uh, the pandemic has not gone away, the economic disruption remains, and uh, we have to remain laser focused on addressing the needs of uh, the people of our state. And that certainly includes making sure that they have the resources to to thrive and to survive uh, this terrible pandemic. So I'm hopeful that we can move fairly quickly with a comprehensive relief package that would include direct monetary relief uh, in the form that you mentioned, as well as other important provisions such as state and local government aid and, and much more.
0: Name one other policy you'd like to pursue after that with the Democratic majority, though, again, thin in the Senate.
3: Uh, it, would, it would be hard to name just one, Ryan. I, we have a very ambitious agenda, as you know, certainly public lands protections. The core Act almost became law uh, last uh, during the last 116th Congress. We intend to make it a law in the 117th Congress and to send that to President Biden's, President-elect Biden's desk for a signature uh, action on climate change, which remains an existential threat. There are so many challenges that we face as a country. I, I believe we'll rise to the occasion that we're up to the challenge, but Uh, We're going to have to get to work. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Democrat Joe Neguse represents Colorado's second congressional district, which includes Boulder and Vail. So normally the removal of a president using the 25th Amendment is cumbersome. But that's not necessarily the case now, says CU Law Professor Paul Campos.
5: Well, actually, under these circumstances, it is pretty easy in one sense. Um, normally, it would be, uh, you're correct, it would be quite difficult to make something like this stick. But the situation right now is such that Mike Pence and seven cabinet members could remove Donald Trump permanently from the presidency, like right now. All they would need to do that is to send a letter to Congress. And as long as a majority of the House of Representatives uh, refused to deal with the matter, which of course they would, then Pence would remain acting president for the rest of Trump's term. So it's pretty straightforward.
0: Now, my understanding is that if Mr. Trump sends a letter himself to Congress saying, oh, I'm okay, there's no problem here, mm-hmm. that that could uh, elongate the process.
5: Well, actually, that in this circumstance, it wouldn't have any effect because Pence would then send another letter saying, I dispute the president's claim that he's a uh, fit to serve and at that point Congress has 21 days to resolve the matter if Congress doesn't resolve the matter within those 21 days then Pence ceases to be acting president and Trump becomes president again but since the House of Representatives by a simple majority vote could block any action on the matter uh, then the clock would simply run out so you know under normal circumstances you would need two-thirds of both the House and the Senate to agree to keep Pence as acting president, but these aren't normal circumstances uh, in any sense, right? And so essentially, a simple majority of the House could say we're simply not acting on this, and Pence would remain as acting president for the rest of Trump's term.
0: By essentially not getting involved. Uh, And and part of the equation here is that there isn't much time left in the presidency.
5: Right, without getting too much into the weeds Uh, There's about a 25-day period where a simple majority of the cabinet can remove a president from the office without any recourse on the president's part, as long as a majority of one House of Congress accedes to the removal. Mm. We're now well within that period, and if a majority of the House of Representatives goes along, uh, and indeed, of course, a majority of the Senate at this point, I think, would definitely go along as well. Pence would simply remain as acting president.
0: Now, it's a bit of a high bar to get that percentage of the cabinet to agree to this, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it is under the circumstances. I mean, it shouldn't be, but there are 15 uh, permanent cabinet members of which Mike Pence has won, so he needs seven of the other 14. Um, I just saw that uh, Elaine Chao just resigned. So that probably makes it more difficult to um, activate this strategy.
0: Uh, United States Secretary of Transportation. This is a fairly modern amendment.
5: Right. It was passed in 19... It was ratified in 1967. So it's only 53, well, almost 54 years old. And it was passed to deal with the recognition that there were a lot of gaps in the constitutional framework for dealing with various kinds of crises of succession. And the immediate impetus was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Hmm. You know, people wondered, well, you know, what if he had been wounded and 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 in a coma for months and so forth, what we, you know, what would we do? There was really no straightforward answer to that question at that point. The amendment was drafted to deal both with uncontroversial cases like that, where you know, say a president is clearly medically incapacitated, but it was also drafted to deal with cases like the present, where um there's controversy as to whether the president is incapacitated or not. But Mike Pence is in a position right now, if he can get seven other cabinet uh, members to uh, sign a letter, to remove Donald Trump immediately and permanently from the presidency right now.
0: Thank you so much for being with us, Professor. Sure thing. Paul Campos is a law professor at CU Boulder. Since we spoke, another cabinet member has resigned in protest, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Boulder County wants to be a national leader on climate change. To get there, it plans to build its own compost facility. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, the plan has run into a problem, its own commitments to save land from development.
4: This material here is from Boulder, and within that is food waste and uh, and compostable packaging. This is Bob Yost,
6: vice president of A1 Organics. We watch as a semi-truck spills its content at the company's largest compost site in Keensburg, Colorado, a town pretty far from the Front Range.
4: Yeah, this is probably 50 miles from Boulder.
6: That means the orange peels at our feet have gone on a journey. All the major cities in Boulder County now offer residential compost pickup. So food scraps start in a bin, get trucked to a transfer point, and only then are driven all the way up here. Stir the stuff, wait, it becomes compost. Yost grabs a handful of the final product. How does that look to you? Look great.
4: That's what we make. That all that looks like this when it's done.
6: But Yost says right now, most of the compost is sold to landscapers, not food producers in Boulder County.
4: For me to haul this product all the way back to Boulder, for an agricultural application is a
6: cost prohibitive. Dan Mach sees an obvious answer to this particular problem. He's a former organic farmer who now directs the compost program for EcoCycle, a nonprofit that operates a local recycling center for Boulder County. And for years, he's pushed officials to build a similar compost facility to cut those trucking emissions and keep carbon in the soil.
0: Here's an opportunity to actually draw down carbon
4: and reverse climate change. You know, to me, that's hopeful enough to get out of bed in the morning.
6: Now, Boulder County hopes to build just such a facility, a county-owned compost site on an old 40-acre tree nursery just west of Erie, Colorado. But farmers near the proposed site don't love the idea.
7: You know, I was, I was very disturbed, actually.
6: This is Brandon White. He grows hay just a few thousand feet from the old nursery, where we're talking now. It's a ramshackle greenhouse and rows of overgrown trees, but White says it's actually a reason he bought his land.
7: This property at the time was owned by an individual, um, but it had a conservation easement on it. Boulder County holds
6: conservation easements on lots of land outside the big cities. They're meant as a hedge against suburbs, strip malls, and oil and gas wells, and they've worked. Green belts of farmland and parks surround the urban areas.
7: Somebody entrusted them to, to maintain this in perpetuity as an agricultural piece of property. Somebody trusted in that. So how could this land
6: become a compost site? White says it all hinges on some tricky legal and financial moves. See, the county has owned the conservation easement since the 1990s, but bought the property a couple of years ago. Boulder County says that nullifies the easement. It also bought the land with tax revenue for open space projects, but county officials say they can hold public hearings to use it for something else. White couldn't believe it. Easements, open space, those tools have helped Boulder County stop fracking projects.
7: That strong stance against oil and gas development, super important to us. Now it appeared those same protections didn't apply to the county itself. And so for Boulder County to come in and, and develop you know, the, this property, which is what they're doing, paving it with concrete, several big buildings. To me, that is is—it's kind of a slap in the face. White helped
6: organize his neighbors against the project. And last month, they met with the county at the nursery and taped the whole thing. As you might expect, it got tense, especially when officials confirmed the site could accept biosolids or process sewage.
7: You make it sound like it's changing, though, from a field to a playground.
5: This is definitely a change in use.
6: This I- it's an
7: industrial-scale waste facility. Yeah,
6: I wouldn't say it went great. This is Andrew Barth, Boulder County's public face for the compost project.
4: I didn't think about, you know, a neighborhood being in a, in a compost area, so I really heard, we really heard exactly what the neighbors thought of it. and. You know, they didn't pull any punches.
6: But Barth says the facility would use a state-of-the-art process, not open piles. But the actual composting will happen in covered concrete bunkers. He says that'll minimize any risk of smells or water pollution.
4: You know, Boulder County is a major steward of the environment. If you've seen our track record, that is something that Boulder County takes very seriously. So we will maintain the integrity of that environment out there.
6: But as the neighbors see it, climate ambitions shouldn't mean tearing up the landscape. And the county? It now says it'll wait to hear more from residents before it seeks approval for the project. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: More than 120,000 Coloradans have gotten their COVID-19 vaccines, but they can't come quickly enough for many other folks, including people 70 and older, who've recently moved up the state's priority list. To sort through this, Dr. Anuj Mehta of Denver Health is back. He has advised the state on the vaccine rollout, and he's on duty today in the ICU. Doctor, thanks for taking the time for us.
1: Thanks for having me back, Ryan.
0: Okay, the most frequent question we get, especially from those folks 70 and older, is when can I get my shot? What's the latest there?
1: So I think one of the most important things is the recognition that individuals who are 70 and older, are at higher risk for severe disease, and that's why they're a priority population. But becoming eligible doesn't mean everybody can get the vaccine that day. There are still shortages, and by making those over the age of 70 eligible, that means we need to get the vaccine out into traditional vaccine venues. So those are primary care providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, um, and physician assistants, into retail pharmacy. And we had not planned to do that until February. And now that this group has been moved up in the priority list, this is something that every local public health authority as well as the state is working on actively in getting the vaccine out in sufficient numbers to these more traditional vaccine venues. In December, right, the focus was on healthcare workers. And so the vaccine venue there was hospitals. And now we have to kind of shift our focus a little bit, and that's a logistical leap, um, and that takes time. So the rollout is uh, a little bit slower than we want, but also it's going to be different in different counties because the supply of vaccine and the number of, say, healthcare workers is different. Mm. In really highly densely densely populated healthcare areas, you know, we, it may take longer to vaccinate healthcare workers. So those um, age seventy and older may be a little bit, you know, a week or two behind. But the goal is to get it to everybody um, uh, by the end of February, and uh, I just think you know everybody has to have a little bit of patience as we work through the logistics. But there is a vaccine for every Colorado that wants one. We just have to um, you know re- recognize that it's still taking weeks to vaccinate healthcare workers.
0: To be clear, when you say everyone will be vaccinated by the end of February, you mean in the seventy and older? To- that's
1: yes. G- that's group. the goal. Yes. The uh, goal is to vaccinate. Yeah, yeah sorry. The, the goal Not is to vaccinate all. those over the age of seventy. Um, uh, by the end of February that want one.
0: I am curious. You talk about rolling this out in doctor's offices and at pharmacies. I know that the vaccine, one of them at least, has to be super chilled. Mm -hmm. Uh, So does that mean that there will be, like, freezers at Rite Aid? Uh, it's a great question, Ryan. So the Pfizer
1: vaccine for long-term storage does require negative eighty degrees. So this is much colder than any other uh, any typical freezer you would have in your home or that would typically be in a doctor's offices. Some pharmacies do actually have negative eighty degree freezers, but not oh. many. Um The key thing is that the Pfizer vaccine can be at regular freezer temperatures for five days. And so it just may mean that they can get it, put it in a regular freezer and use it more rapidly. The Moderna vaccine can actually be at regular f- freezer temperatures for 30 days. And so, yes, it does require a freezer, but actually, most doctors' offices and pharmacies have regular freezers for mm. other vaccines that actually, or even insulin, that have to be kept at cold temperatures.
0: I'd like to talk about folks who have access to the vaccine, but may be hesitant to take it. So, as we've discussed, healthcare workers are first in line. And I wonder if you're seeing some at Denver Health who don't want the vaccine.
1: I think we've seen an evolution of vaccine hesitancy. So I think when the conversations first started uh, several months ago, when it was still a hotly political debate about are we going to rush the rush it through the approvals process? There were a lot of healthcare workers in surveys that were hesitant about the vaccine, not being sure if the right safety protocols would be in place. I think what we saw with the um, emergency use authorizations not coming until really good data was released, people had a lot more trust. So in December, when the vaccines first became available to healthcare workers, we saw that the vaccine hesitancy amongst healthcare workers had gone down. A lot more healthcare workers wanted it, which was fantastic. There was still a small subset of people that were concerned, either because they had pre-existing conditions or for a variety of reasons. And now after over 100,000 Coloradans have been vaccinated, Mm -hmm. and we see millions of people across the United States without any severe reactions other than some allergies, um, I think we're seeing that people initially who were hesitant, healthcare workers in December, are now asking for the vaccine. So we're slowly seeing hesitancy decrease as we see greater safety uh, profile in real-world use, which is very encouraging to me. I got my first dose two and a half weeks ago, and my second dose is on Monday, and I'm super excited about
0: it. And how did you feel getting the first dose? Uh,
1: I felt great. Uh, I mean, my arm was sore. It's a shot. Um, I don't want to be too much of a baby, but it hurt a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was on my spin bike for an hour the next morning. Um, I did not have a fever. Um, I maybe had a little bit of a headache. Um, and, but other than that, it was, it was fine. My wife, who's also a healthcare worker, got her vaccine the same day as me. Um, and she, she was a little tired the next day, but you know nothing out of the ordinary with two young kids. Um, so uh, you know, we felt really good in and, and talking to my colleagues. yeah, some people have low grade fevers, some aches and pains, but nothing out of what you would expect even for the standard flu vaccine. I do know of several cases of allergic reactions, all of which were handled very quickly and did not lead to any severe issues whatsoever. So the, I think the safety profile of the vaccine, is really adhering to what we saw from the data from the clinical trials. And I really, for for healthcare workers, I think that's helping decrease hesitancy. And I hope our uptake as healthcare workers convinces the general community that this is gonna be a safe and effective vaccine for them.
0: I would like to go to the how here. So we talked about why the rollout among those 70 and older is uneven. That has to do with uneven distribution throughout the state based on population. That has to do with how many frontline healthcare workers are in line first. When it is someone's turn, how will they know? Uh, I mean, I guess if it's through the pharmacy system, if it's through my physician, assuming I have access to either of those... Uh, That would be a point of communication.
1: So there are a few different mechanisms. I know multiple health systems are reaching out to pre-existing patients who are over the age of 70, either through email communication, standard letters, and in some cases, phone calls um, to say, you are now eligible, here are the appointments that you can schedule. Some of the appointments are next week. Some of them are not till February, and that's because of supply issues and also the time it takes to give the vaccine and do monitoring. So that's one mechanism. Some health systems are reaching out electronically or via letters. Um, Some, uh, when retail pharmacies get it, I'm sure they're going to reach out to their patients that obtain their prescriptions there and advertise as well. And then um, there's also a push now that local public health agencies and CDPAG advertise to some degree where people can get it. This is in the works. It hasn't been done yet. Um, but they're trying to develop some websites that people can go to to serve as a reference where somebody that may not have traditional access to the healthcare system, somebody without a primary care uh, provider, um, uh, where they can learn where they can get it. So what I would tell people, you know, try and contact your doctor's office um, or your primary care provider's office. And then um, if that doesn't work, go to your local public health website Um, and, and just know that a lot of communication is going to be coming in the next couple of weeks. Okay. All public health systems are trying to ramp this up as fast as they could. You know, last week, nobody thought we were going to be doing it this quickly. So now that we are, everyone's trying to do the best that they can, as fast as they can, recognizing that this, you know, this past weekend was a holiday and a lot of people had off, not that that's, you know, anything other than going to throw a little bit more of a hiccup in the process.
0: Could you picture, as we've seen with COVID-19 testing, drive up, drive through vaccination centers? I mean, I am thinking primarily of those who don't have a medical home.
1: I think that is something that most public health groups are working on. Now, there are a few logistical challenges, and I think this is important for listeners to know. When you get the COVID-19 vaccine, we are entering people, de-identified patient information for tracking purposes, to know when to remind somebody to come back for the second dose. So you actually need a Wi-Fi connection to a secure encrypted system so people can log in the vaccine information. We also need, if it's a drive-through, we need still need to be able to monitor people for 15 minutes afterwards for an allergic reaction. Oh. So you need a pretty big parking lot, um, which is, these are kind of logistical you know, workflow issues that are critical to think about. So there were, um, um public health agencies are working through the logistics of this and really we want to partner with um you know local communities whether it's church parking lots um community center parking lots and all of that's happening now it's just happening much faster than we thought we were going to have to so i think you know my reminder to people is that this isn't something that where everyone can, everyone can get the vaccine on the same day even healthcare workers can do that we're still vaccinating healthcare workers even their first dose some people are scheduled next week it takes weeks to do so same thing with the individuals over the age of 70. I, I advise patients and just know that if you want a vaccine and you're over the age of 70, there is going to be a mechanism for you to get that vaccine. You just have to wait for that communication. And there's a big focus from CDPHE and the governor's office on equitable distribution. So That means delivering vaccine um, to the hardest hit communities as well.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And Uh, Dr. Anuj Mehta is back with us, pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health and Hospitals. He also served on two state advisory groups working on vaccine allocation. I'm curious, uh, Dr. Mehta, you mentioned that on Monday, you'll be getting your second dose. And then after that, sometime after that, you'll be shielded from COVID-19. Does that mean you can hang out with other vaccinated people? Like, are you going to have a vaccine dance party? It's a great question. Um, I
1: I still think we're going to be a little bit hesitant, my wife and I, and and it has to be a a family decision, right? I can't make unilateral decisions really about anything. Um, um, So uh, part of it is we have two young kids who will not be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, And we know that the vaccines are highly efficacious in reducing COVID illness and preventing people from getting sick from COVID. We know less about asymptomatic infection. And so I would never want a situation where somebody comes into my house and potentially exposes my children, even somebody that's vaccinated. So I still think that we're gonna be a little bit hesitant about associating with other people um, outside of kind of what we're already doing. Um, Zoom and FaceTime have been fantastic to reach out to friends throughout the country um, uh, for the last uh, several months. But I do think that, um, you know, I'm still gonna be wearing a mask with everything that I do because of my concern about asymptomatic uh, transmission. Um, I'm still going to socially distance from especially people that aren't vaccinated. Um, but it, I think even from people that are vaccinated, I think okay. we're still going to try and do the right public health measures to protect everyone around us, um, including, um, including my extended family as well.
0: And it's possible that the vaccine uh, m- makes the symptoms of COVID-19 milder, not that it prevents it entirely, correct? Exactly. So we know
1: that amongst the general population, the, from the clinical trials, the vaccines were, had 95% efficacy. That means some people that got the vaccine still got COVID, um, and that's true of every vaccine. Nothing in medicine is 100%. Um, so, but 95% is almost is better than almost any other vaccine that I've seen. That being said, there's a small chance that you could still get COVID after the vaccine, and but the, cha- but the likelihood is that you will have a very, very mild course. Both the Pfizer and Moderna trials were to, um, had good data that the vaccine not only prevents um, illness, but really prevents severe illness. And that's true of the flu vaccine, too. You can still get influenza after the flu vaccine, but the chances of having severe influenza are far less. And that's a really home run for these vaccines.
0: Before we go, are you seeing the effects of the more contagious strain of COVID-19 on Colorado? We,
1: um, that's a tough question because we're not widely testing. It takes more complex testing to right. detect the variant. Um, typically, in a hospital setting, when we test somebody for COVID, it's positive or negative. They have to do a lot more behind-the-scenes testing to detect the variant. What we are seeing is that our numbers are luckily stabilizing a bit in the hospital we're still very busy. And from a mental health perspective, all healthcare workers are still struggling with the last nine months on a cumulative basis, right? It's building up. That being said, our numbers, numbers are stable um, relatively in, in a lot of hospitals, if not going a little bit down. Um, so we haven't seen kind of like things go like wildfire because of the new variant. We just don't know how widespread it is because we don't have the capability to do that extensive testing. But I know CDPH is working on that.
0: Thank you so much for your time, doctor. Of course. Dr. Nujmeta is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health and Hospitals. As I mentioned, he served on two state advisory groups working on vaccine allocation. Okay, still to come, what pikas, those furry little rodents, tell us about climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As
2: Colorado tries to reboot the economy, there's a growing problem for working parents. The early childhood workforce isn't keeping up with demand. We're asking childcare providers for quality care at a low cost that parents can afford, and that's an equation that doesn't quite work. I'm Jenny Brendine from CPR News. Listen through the month for our series about how Colorado is confronting the challenge of the workforce behind the workforce. Or find stories online at cpr.org.
0: Biologist Johanna Varner is affectionately called Pika Joe. After the potato-sized rabbit relatives she studies, they live under mountain rocks. Varner calls them spheres with ears, but climate change threatens them. Varner is a professor at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. She and the Pikas are featured in a new episode of the CBS show Mission Unstoppable.
1: These rugged mountain dwellers can die if exposed to temperatures above 77 degrees Fahrenheit, so they live at high elevations where it stays cool. By studying pica survival in this habitat, we can learn how climate change is affecting this region.
0: Varner's also passionate about getting young people, especially girls, involved in the sciences. And Professor, thank you for joining us.
2: It's great to be here.
0: How did you decide to focus on these furry little creatures?
2: Well, I actually took sort of a a non-linear path to becoming a pica biologist myself. I actually studied um, engineering in my past life, and Um, When I finished a master's of engineering, I took a little bit of time off. I was living at home. I was um, working at a bakery, and I read a newspaper article about pikas. And it was really a formative moment for me because I realized that there was this whole group of people out there called ecologists, (laughs) and they um, did science with cute animals in the mountains. And I thought, I would be really good at that. (laughs) And so I I literally cold called the um, scientist that was featured in that article. A woman named Denise Deering, she worked at University of Utah and she had done her own PhD on pikas and sent her an email like, hi, my name's Joe. I really like pikas. How can I become a pika biologist? And uh, she sort of took a chance on me, um, offered me a position in the lab, and I ended up doing my PhD with her um, up until about 2015.
0: The fact that she got back to you seems really pivotal in your life. And I wonder if you think about that, perhaps if young women reach out to you similarly.
2: Yeah, I do. I absolutely think about that. And I also think that um, a really important aspect of that story was just sort of being exposed to that field and the fact that it existed. And so that is sort of a, a big part of what I try to do also for young women is just help them to understand, you know, the variety of different kinds of STEM careers that are out there. Because it honestly hadn't really even occurred to me until that time that I could do science outside in the mountains instead of inside at a microscope.
0: And you didn't want to be in a lab all day.
2: Right. I had spent <laughs> um, about five years doing lab research um, it, it, with a microscope in a cold, dark room by myself. Um, and while I think that it was really important research, and I'm so grateful that other people uh, do that, it wasn't a great fit for my personality.
0: <laughs> all right. You study a population of picas in the LaSalle Mountains just across the Colorado border in eastern Utah. Why is this such a good place to study pika adaptation And survival.
2: Yeah, the LaSalle mountains are just such a unique mountain range for pikas. And the biggest thing about them is, you know, this is the mountain range that you see in these kind of iconic pictures of of delicate arch and the Moab desert. And in fact, the, the mountains are surrounded by low elevation Utah Red Rock desert, much like our own Colorado National Monument here in Grand Junction, for about 40 miles in all directions. And so um, if you think of mountains as being kind of like islands in the sky, the LaSalle Mountains are kind of like a Fiji or a Pacific Island that is just way out there by itself. Um, So it's really hard for pikas then to kind of move around. They can't really move on or off of that mountain range from anywhere else. And so um, that's one of the things that makes it really unique. On top of that, it's pretty far south as far as the distribution of pikas go. Um, It's pretty far towards the southern end southern range edge of their distribution. And so um, for that reason, it's a place that we might predict that they would be vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And that's one of the big research questions that we're trying to
0: get at. I never thought that Utah would be compared to Fiji, but here we are. (laughs) I know, it's it's (laughs) the first
2: time I think I've ever made that comparison.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the idea is that you, you do have this island of a population to study. And I understand that pikas really are an indicator species. They tell us something about the health of everything around them in the face of climate change, right?
2: Right. And the idea there, they've oftentimes been kind of linked, likened to a canary in the coal mine. The idea being that pikas, no species exists in an ecosystem by itself, right? They, they're important in terms of the way that they move around plants, and they serve as an important prey base for their predators, largely weasels. And so... But because pikas are so much more sensitive to the effects of temperature and snowpack, um, then we can actually use them as kind of an indicator saying, if the pikas are doing well here, then we can think that you know largely the ecosystem is doing well. Whereas if the, we are starting to see pika declines in a region, um, we can start looking at how that might affect other species as well.
0: You mentioned the snowpack. Why is the snowpack so important? For Is the plural pika or pikas?
2: The plural is pikas it's although picas, a lot okay. of people use the plural pica pica, as well. pika
0: yeah uh but tell <laughs> me why the snowpack is so important for them is it just a question of of their water supply or what
2: Yeah well you know mountain snowpack is important for all of us in Colorado uh. but perhaps even more so um for the pikas which is um because they don't hibernate like most alpine mammals they're awake under the snowpack um, throughout the winter and they Um, experience colder temperatures um, when there's a lower amount of snowpack. So that snowpack actually acts sort of like a blanket of insulation. Um, If you imagine being in the mountains in the winter, it's almost always colder than 32 degrees Fahrenheit right at freezing. Um, But down at the bottom of that thick winter snowpack in the mountains, it actually keeps the temperature right at freezing. So right at 32 degrees. And so what that means is that in years where there's a very thin snowpack, um, the temperatures that the pikas are experiencing in the rocks below the snow are actually much, much colder. And so it's sort of this ironic thing that on average, the temperatures are getting warmer. That's reducing the winter snowpack. And um, as a result, the pikas are actually experiencing colder temperatures. And obviously that can also affect their, their plants in the summer, um, you know, through through moisture and plant growth.
0: It's hard for me to picture what's under snowpack. In other words, there's enough space for them to scurry about and kind of be amongst the dormant vegetation, I guess.
2: Right. And they don't actually um, forage on vegetation under the snowpack. They're, you know, they're living kind of in the, the spaces between the rocks. So the snow sort of forms a bridge over the top of the rocks. Um, and then they live in the spaces in the rock slide um, below the snow. Uh, but they also cache all of the food that they plan to eat during the winter. They have to go and collect that during the summer while that food is fresh and growing. And so a single pika will make thousands of trips to the meadow carrying back Um, large plants and big mouthfuls of food to bring back into the rock slide. And that's one of the reasons that they're so fun to watch is that they just go back and forth and back and forth carrying, you know, what seem like really ridiculously huge
0: uh, bunches of flowers. In just the last few seconds, are you worried about them?
2: You know, we are kind of on alert here in Colorado. We're seeing declines in other parts of their range, but um, in Colorado, there's reason to sort of suspect that may happen. We're not seeing big declines here yet. Um, but we're keeping an eye on them.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your passion with us. I appreciate it. You're so welcome. Biologist Johanna Varner studies pikas and teaches at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. She's featured in a new episode of the CBS TV show, Mission Unstoppable. So the pandemic means staying at home as much as possible these days, but we occasionally, we need a change of scene. Maybe it's a park, a trail, a different room of the house, We've asked you to share your pandemic-happy places. And musician Dave Hefner of Broomfield went above and beyond for us. He wrote a song about his favorite spot.
4: Went to the mountains to break the status quo For the reasons people go To grow the eagles, the elk, the clean air Myself to get to know Climbing up the ridge for the meadow below Arriving at the peak, rocky trail plateaus. Stones loomed above me, fighting rain and snow. Million years of winds that blow. Why do we go? Why do you
0: ask to see... His song is about life. El Dorado Canyon, like you, a Boulder County mecca for hikers, like climbers, and anglers. Hefner wrote a poem about the place and then set it to music. He says it's about looking for an eagle on a mountaintop, but finding a crow.
4: Something moved, casting shadows below. What lives there? What wildlife will show? Expecting an eagle to spread its wings, and then I hear a sound I know. The call of an old black crow. Not dressed for the occasion. Not moved much by persuasion. Wrong equation. Odd sensation. Crow looked down at the people on the ground, in a way as if to say, hey... Just like you, let me be free, let me have peace, let me be me. Agree, see, this is key.
0: Dave Hefner of Broomfield with an ode to El Dorado Canyon, a place a lot of people love. In fact, officials warn of heavy usage on weekends when the park frequently reaches capacity. Keep your voicemails, voice memos, and yes, even songs about your pandemic happy places coming. Email Colorado Matters at CPR.org, or you can call 303-871-9191, extension 480. That's CPR's main number, 303-871-9191, extension 480. Thanks so much to the team that brings Colorado Matters to the air. Carl Bielek, Ali Buckner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hurms, Michael you know? Hughes,
2: Carla do do Jimenez, Avery Lill, Lil.
0: Pedro Lombrano,
2: Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey, Paolo Shalsina. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with me and the Pikas. This is CPR News.